matter. Um, and then there are those of us who like to just relax and get through the project and have a good time through the project. And so you hate working with people like me. And it ends up that sometimes there's conflict in group. All these things happen. Well, there's a reason why the research is very, very clear about why we should do cooperative learning with students. And one of them is because a lot of us don't have those skills of being able to communicate well and work well with others. Um, so the first thing that we need to think about when we're dealing with uh, collaborative learning or cooperative learning is that the research does support that type of learning. And not only does the research support it, but a common um, common business literature right now is saying that they want people who are able to work in groups. So when we had the SCANS report back in the 80s, when we have the 21st century uh, report that came out in about 2001 or so, they all say, what do employers want in the future? They don't want to know that your students can do fractions. What they want to know is that your students, as future employees, can work well in a group to be innovative and creative. So that is what that is one of the reasons why I'm advocating for this approach, even though personally I hate it, but I know for my students this is something that we have to do to prepare our students for a future in our country. Um, the next thing I want to tell you about is balancing time. Of course, you never want to do small group learning all the time. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. When we look at Gardner's multiple intelligences, we have Gail's excited now, see? Um, <laughs> He has two that really relate to this area. One is interpersonal intelligence. And interpersonal means that we communicate between people. Another is intrapersonal, which is I'm reflecting and, and um, being inflective on uh, myself. So we need to have, we need to provide opportunities for students who have more interpersonal and more uh, intrapersonal intelligences. This is also true with Dunn and Dunn's research on learning styles. And they identify that there's whole group instruction, there's um, uh, small group instruction, and then there's one-on-one -on -one or independent instruction. And what we find is that there are students who have learning styles in each of those different areas. So when we're talking about differentiated instruction, the big thing that we talk about right now, we need to make sure that we appreciate those different learning styles. And so having a balance of ensuring that you have some independent instruction, which you're probably getting a whole bunch of right now and a whole bunch of whole um, group instruction with the CRTs right now, make sure that you also bring in that small group instruction. So that's going to be our focus for this module. Um, group types, of course, we've got homogeneous and heterogeneous. Homogeneous tends to be very good when we're dealing with specific skills, so like your reading groups or maybe if you're working with a, a math group. In history, though, we usually find heterogeneous grouping, and that, again, comes out of the research. The reason why collaborative uh, learning groups work so well is because we have students that are ex um, ex excellent learners, and we have students who are are working to be little better learners. And what we find is our high achieving and our low achieving students both learn when we're working in groups. The highest achieving learners, they learn because they actually have to take what they know and teach it to the others. And we know that teaching is the highest form of being able to learn and, and integrate that content into our own understanding. The lowest level learners are learning either because they're hearing it for the first time or it's being reinforced for them. And so when we talk about, um, about grouping types in the social studies classroom, I encourage you to use heterogeneous grouping. Um, you probably already have your classes set up in, in 
pods or in small groups. And of course, you've probably chosen those groups for a specific reason, because they're probably heterogeneous groups or, or homogeneous groups. When you have students get into groups for a history project, you can use those groups, or you can give them the opportunity to work in other groups, in which case they're going to increase that opportunity to work on those corporate skills on collaboration. So there are ways that you can get them in groups. One is just to tell them all. One is to let them do whatever they want, and that I wouldn't encourage them, like what I gave you, but you're all professionals, so I trust that you can do that. Um, another thing is to do games. And so one example would be a Who Am I game that some of you are familiar with, where you put the name of somebody on the back of each child. This is one of my favorites, actually. <laughs> um, you put the name of somebody on each child's back. Well, you assign who gets what name on their back, but they don't really know who it is. So you might have names like Pocahontas and uh, John Smith, and you might have Abraham Lincoln and uh, General Sherman and Benjamin Franklin and um, Thomas Jefferson. And so the kids have to go around using yes and no questions, figure out who they are, who am I? Once they figure it out, then they have to go and find their group, which will be other people from the same time period in this case. So that's a way to get them, you're getting them learning and doing kind of an advanced organizer before you even um, get started. So a fun little get up kinesthetic activity, again, bringing in those, um, those different learning styles. Um, I know that you all use cooperative learning in some way in your classroom, and I'm sure that you already have your students doing recorder and reporter and timekeeper and leader or encourager, things like, how many of you do that already? Oh. I figured you all did that, but I'm sure you've all learned about that. Have any of you not ever learned about cooperative learning? Okay, so I figured you all know this. This is old stuff to you. Um, but one thing that we don't really um, worry about when we're dealing with children is the issue of integrity in the way that who's working. There's always that problem of somebody's working and somebody's not working. Well, I can very easily in my classroom go up and put my hand on the back of Anya as she's not talking and maybe whisper to her, don't you have anything to include or something to add? And I can make sure that all of my students are staying, uh, staying involved and meaningfully um, contributing um, at least at least as much as possible because I can see what's going on. And in an adult context, however, I don't have that privilege as a teacher. And so what I want to, um, the word that I really want to use in regard to this is integrity. And that is, you are responsible for two forms of integrity in this class and in other classes you take. One is professional integrity. If you're not doing your work, if you're not pulling your weight on an assignment, then you're showing that you're lacking some professional expectations because we expect you to be doing that. And that's an issue of integrity. The other thing is personal integrity. Know that if you're working in a group and you're not pulling your weight, you're not just hurting yourself and your own grade, but you're hurting the people with whom you have made a commitment to work. And so that's something that is always a concern um, whenever you have group work, especially in a hybrid class like this. So just wanted to get that out of the way, so hopefully that won't be an issue for any of our groups. Okay. Collaborative grouping, one of the things, are any of you familiar with accountability talk? Have any of you heard of that? Oh, okay. I thought more of you would have known about it. Um, when you're teaching students to work in groups, 
you need to teach them how to communicate with one another. It doesn't come naturally. Um, and proof that it doesn't come naturally is when you look at adults who maybe can't deal very well with communicating with others. And so we need to teach this in schools. It's an important social skill, and it fits into your social studies curriculum, and it fits beautifully into cooperative group work. So some of the elements of accountability talk is that you have in your group only one person talking at a time. Everyone else is to listen attentively. They can ask clarifying questions or they can give comments, but only after the other person is done with their statement. Um, they are not to be interrupted and they need to, um, everyone needs to be encouraged to have participation. But not just participation, you can't just say yes or no at the end. You need to actually come up with something meaningful. And it's a good idea to have everybody's job be to encourage each other to give something meaningful and wait for each person to have an opportunity to talk. Um, you might have a person that's assigned, like your leader, um, to keep everybody on task. Um, in a pair, that's not quite as easy, but usually if you have time, say 30 seconds for you to talk, 30 seconds for you to talk, that will do it. But when you're in a group of three to five, you can't necessarily do that timing. So you want to make sure at least one person is cognizant of who's had an opportunity to communicate and who hasn't and whether or not they're staying on topic. Especially with adults, we find it's very easy for us to get off topic, um, especially when we have longer periods. I think kids are probably better at that than than adults are. You think that's true or not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Deanna says, yes, I work with adults, I know. Okay. The last thing is back to that issue of accountability and, um, and integrity, and that is everyone's responsible for doing their part. Recognizing that your part might be to come up with the ideas, to be creative, because maybe you're not the best writer in the class. But Johnny is the best writer in the class, and he's in my group. So I'm going to spend my time coming up with all the great ideas and telling him. And for the first time, I might be able to see all my great ideas now written down, because there's somebody who can hear them and write them. So how empowering is that for somebody who maybe is not a strong reader? Maybe for some or writer. Somebody who's a strong writer maybe really isn't too good at coming up with creative ideas. And for the first time, they can make their writing into something spectacular, because they have that gift of somebody who's a little bit more creative working with them. So that's what the benefit of cooperative learning is all about. Okay, enough on cooperative learning. This is the second mini lecture and we're moving over to historical narrative. Okay, historical narrative includes three things. It includes historical fiction, biography, and folk literature. Um, we are going to be focusing on two of these. Uh, the title of this module is Collaborative Biographies or Cooperative Biographies. And that is what my goal is for you to be able to do with your students. You are going to be creating historical fiction, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But ultimately, what I want you to do, you're going to create this big grand project that you can share with your kids and that they can read. And then after they see what you can do, they're going to start researching an individual then they're going to be able to create a, a pattern book or an ABC book about that individual. So you're going for the idea of biography with them, but for us, we're stepping it up a notch to historical fiction, which requires a lot more content knowledge. So what is historical fiction? And Dana agreed to read this for me. Yeah. Uh, historical fiction is a category of realistic stories that are set in the past. The facts are accurate, but the characters are fictional, although they sometimes interact with actual historical figures. Historical fiction offers children opportunities to vicariously experience the past 
by entering into a convincingly true-to-life world of people who have lived before them. By being transported to the past through the vehicle of literature, students enter into the lives of the historical figures and, through mental imagery, become moved to attach emotion to their condition. Okay, and that's a lot of words, but there are a few words that I really want to bring to your attention. The first um, is realistic and accurate. When we are dealing with history, that's the most important thing that we're doing. In your classroom, you are teaching reading, writing, and math, but you're also teaching history and science and other social studies subjects. When you are teaching social studies, I know that you're still teaching writing and reading and math, but you need to teach them to be accurate in what they're doing historically. You need to meet those standards and, and meet those goals and expectations. Um, so being accurate and realistic is the key component to having them write biography or historical fiction. They're going to interact with actual historical figures. Of course, that doesn't mean that um, that Abraham Lincoln actually spoke with this certain individual, but we can pretend that he did, and you can teach, especially with your third grade classes, that this is a pretend thing. You might have to go over that over and over again. But they have those interactions, and that ensures you an opportunity to be able to talk about those actual historical individuals or, or characters. Um, they vicariously experience. The idea is to create something that the child can go into the story, can become a part of the story, and think that they were actually there. That's our ultimate goal, to make it so realistic they have a vicarious experience with it. Students enter into the lives of historical figures and they attach emotions. What we find, what Howard Zinn talks about, who is an incredible historian, is he talks about how we learn history. We lear usually learn who are the important people in history. And we go through and we learn all the facts and figures about it. That's been probably your history um, in, education, in history education. But when you think about what would you like to read, probably you don't want to read something like that. I mean, there are those of us who might enjoy that. But probably you enjoy more hearing a story about an individual person. What was it like so I can make a connection? And that's what historical fiction allows you to do, is to make that connection and that, that um, emotional um, connection. Okay. So when we are going to be doing historical writing, um, there are some things that we need to start with. And first of all is that you need to assume that your audience knows nothing. And this is very easy because right now, I know nothing about our topic and I'm guessing that many of you don't know much about it except for what we've just learned. So assume that they know nothing and you know that your students know nothing about the topic of immigration at this point. Maybe they've heard of it, but I'm, I'm doubting many of them know anything at all. So assume that they know nothing. So when you're writing, you need to work from that assumption. Next is use the chronology, the actual timeline of events to sequence your story. Um, that's nice because it's easier than for students to follow because it's going in time. We have those great movies where it starts at the end and then it goes back to the beginning. That's, that's not a good way to do historical fiction. A better way to do historical fiction, especially with kids, is just do the chronological sequencing. And if all the kids get out of reading that is the sequencing, then you've taught a very important skill in, in history education. Uh, next is making it true to life. Again, we want it to be emotional and personal. We want, we want our students to be able to see the passion of the individual that was speaking. So if you read something, if you have a, a historical fiction story that includes the civil rights activists, you want to be able to see the passion. You want to see in their hearts how they 
were angry in some ways, but they were more, more than being angry, they were resolved to make change because change was right. And it's that kind of thing that gives you tingles to know that, that, that they were doing something that was right and they were passionate about it. That's what you want to get in those, into that story. Um, and again, when we're dealing with, with um, history, we want it to be fact-based. So you want to include primary source references, and I showed you some places where you can get some of those primary source references, but also use the web. It's incredible. Um, honestly, I don't recommend the Library of Congress site for a lot of this research. Um, what uh, Dr. Green recommended is using the Ellis Island website that they have a ton of information, especially if you want to do genealogy type stuff, if I remember correctly. So there are a lot of great websites out there. And if you would like, we can start to come up with a list of where you can find some great primary sources. Um, and I can make those available to you. But make sure that you bring in those primary sources. Um, when you when you include a fact, make sure you have a reason for it. And this actually is on the next slide. but. Um, it's called economy of detail. And those of you who just had digital storytelling, you know that that's one of the elements of digital storytelling. That means that when you're going to tell a story, you don't want to include everything. You want to include everything that is relevant. And a great example, if I can use Gail, she's, this is where you're supposed to go like this. <laughs> she said, I'll put my head up. Um, when she did her story last year, um, she had a wonderful story between a mulatto woman and a white man in the Civil War. And he was in Gettysburg. She was at home. And they were writing letters back and forth. One thing that she did that was amazing is before she started writing those letters, she went and read letters between love letters from people of that era. And so she knew what the genre was that she would be using. So definitely, you need to go and read what are the types of things that people were saying. Read those quotes that are in those books that I recommended. But she would add in little things that, if you weren't listening really carefully, you'd just hear the story, and you wouldn't even hear these little facts that she had in. One, she had at the very beginning of, of the man's letter, he said something along the lines of, well, I don't know if I ever told you this, Charlene. Charlene? Yes. Charlene. But um, I thought about, I talked with father about, you probably don't even remember this. I talked with father <laughs> about um, paying $300 so I wouldn't have had to go to war. That was like one little sentence in there. But that she knew that there was this $300 getaway fee that you could have used, that was amazing. And she had little things like that that were perfect examples of economy of detail. She just didn't include it to include it. It fit well into the story. So that's a great way to, you want to bring in as many facts as you can, but only if they're perfectly relevant to what you're doing. Um, of course, you want it, the setting to be accurate. And a good way to do that is to actually look at pictures from the time. Um, think about watching a movie. And when uh, think about something like uh, Queen Elizabeth, if any of you have seen that. The, the costumes are amazing. But the costumes really set the place where you are. And can you create that type of a setting, what the tenements look like, what the clothing look like, when you are putting together your, your story? Yes, Deanna. Of immigrant 
did a lot of immigrant work as well. And she, you should be able to find a lot of stuff by them on the web to, to have that kind of detail. Okay, and what was the first one's name, Reese? Jacob Reese. Jacob Reese. I'm pretty sure that first picture, the one that's been the major background, that's one of his. Do you recognize it? Yeah, that actually looks more like Lewis it? I thought it said Reese. It, it might have. But okay. It, all right, let's go on to the next one, elements of historical writing. So when you are writing, what do you need to include or tell your students to include? First of all, it needs to be accurate to the time period and contextually detailed. So unless you create a visual image that matches with that, that time period, you really are, are wasting your time in putting everything together. So make sure that it's contextually detailed. Next is you want it to be pleasing to read. When you read a story, you want to be hooked at the very beginning, and that's one of the requirements on the, um, on the rubric that you have, and you want to stay hooked throughout. So you want something lively going on. You want to be able to get sad sometimes and happy sometimes. You want to bring in all those adjectives for your expressive speaking. You guys should be queen and king of those right now, working with those. And you want it to be interesting. Uh, for this assignment, I want you to go one step farther and make it unique. Um, often with kids' literature, you see the same kind of story over and over. It's kind of like reading a Harlequin romance, I think, where it's the same, the same thing over and over and over with just different characters. Well, um, don't, don't do that. We've got incredible resource of characters with totally different lives, totally different experiences. So take those unique experiences of those individuals and create your own. Okay. Uh, any questions? Okay. Yeah. You want to know, can we do three different characters and do three different stories, or does it have to be? Somebody asked me that. The reason that I say no, I, you can do three different characters with three different stories. But the reason I say no is I don't want to see three different people doing three different assignments because I want you to have that experience of working together. Now, I know that that's very difficult to write together. You might, um, what I'm going to recommend and what I expect for you to do for next time before you come is I want you to at least get together with your group and online or in school if you're at the same school, however you want to do it. Um, I would actually use um, Google Docs to set this up, but create a major, um, not a major, at least a, um, a skeleton, an outline of your story. And that way then, if you have the general idea of your story and we'll have more time to talk in your groups about your story next time, um, then what you can do is say, okay, I will do chapter one, but you've got that outline that everybody is working on on the same thing, okay? Well, we were thinking of those like three different perspectives. And that's a great way to go too. So, but but I want it to be from the beginning to the end of one single story. Okay, so if you want to bring in three